Hello <laughs> from Whistler, live from Whistler. We are in Whistler because we are on a voyage to uh, record a little history from Birkin. And that history is that we have not been back to the old Shack Monastery for 23 years. And a week ago, it suddenly occurred to me that we should take some video cameras and go on a little journey to explore the history and record it because I have told various stories about the place, but um, people don't know anything about it. So we, we decided, I asked anybody want to go and turns out everybody wanted to go. So there's nine of us. <laughs> and uh, then we realized, oh, it's a long ways to go and we're going to have to stay overnight someplace. So we had to find a place and it turned out the only reasonable places were in Whistler about an hour south of the Shack Monastery. And so here we are in a place called this Swiss Chalet. <laughs> so we have this whole place to ourselves, this lovely place, and it happens to have high-speed internet. And one of the things that we don't have at the monastery is high-speed internet. We have satellite internet. So most of our things have to be well-produced ahead of time and then uploaded, sometimes it takes us 16 hours to upload a single video to YouTube. But here with high-speed internet, we can do a live streaming uh, interactive broadcast. And uh, so this is what we thought we would uh, do this. We're, this is our last night here. And we just actually returned from the uh, quest to record the old uh, monastery and it was quite quite uh, amazing to me because it is just as I remembered it and it these dilapidated shacks which we called the shack monastery are still standing and but barely standing they are really truly derelict shacks somebody has bought the property and uh, built a nice house there but they haven't destroyed the old shacks. I guess they have a historical sense there. But we, aside from taking a few uh, snapshots and videos of the shacks, we, we also explored the Birkenhead River, which is truly uh, a, one of the eighth wonder, eight, eight wonders of the world. It's a glacial-fed river which comes off the Birkenhead Lake. And we walked up it, and there's not a soul there. Not, there's been no development whatsoever in the last... I, I went there 35 years ago first as a lay hermit. Was there for almost three years as a lay hermit from about 1985 to 1988. And nothing has changed. There's still... It's still remote. There's still uh, nobody on the river. And so we, we walked in, it was just absolutely st staggeringly beautiful. And we, we did a number of videos and photographs and everything of it. So we really captured that before it disappears. So that was our main uh, mission. Partly it was also an excuse to go on a little journey out of the monastery. We've been in the monastery since uh, last January. And only one person 
per week goes out to the store and gets some groceries because, of course, the monastery has been closed since, uh, since the winter retreat and we have no guests, but there are 10 of us in residence. And uh, we will be in residence throughout the entire winter as well. And that is, uh, it's, an, it's a nice opportunity to just take a little uh, road trip before we actually go in for the duration of the winter. Personally, as uh, a monk who likes the quiet of the countryside, and uh, I, I don't mind at all to be in, <laughs> in uh, remote areas for, uh, for an extended period of time. And uh, my, I have uh, a few monastics with me. I have Jyoti Palo and Tan Sid and Sister Mon, and we have six stewards as well. And uh, so we'll all be harmoniously in, in uh, retreat through the winter. But this is a little, uh, a little expedition, and that's kind of a monk's holiday. Perhaps you wonder how monks have holidays. Well, we go roaming around, but there's very little that a monk can do. It's not like you can go play tennis or something like that or go to a nightclub. No, no, we can't do that. So we kind of journey around and take walks in the in a different forest, <laughs> maybe go to a garden. If we're in a city, we go to a garden. You can go to an art gallery perhaps or something like that, but not much else than that. But that's called a monk's holiday. <laughs> and uh, it's uh, now also a steward's holiday as well. But this is another uh, thing we can do on our monk's holiday is to have a live streaming interactive uh, uh, by the way, I, we, this, uh, in December, we will be doing a retreat, uh, a, lot, uh, a virtual retreat from December 21st to January 1st. So over the Christmas period, we normally have a retreat at the monastery, and we aim to include you all, whoever wants to, join in this virtual retreat, because I know um, if you're on the, of the Buddhist inclination that sometimes the Christmas period is not all that harmonious for you and to be trapped in the middle of it. So we will give you extra support um, at this during this COVID time for the Christmas period. We will call it uh, the loving... the. the the Winter Loving Kindness Retreat from December 21st to January 1st. Uh, so stay tuned for that. And in, as well, in the meantime, we will also, our YouTube channel will also be putting up tea times and other things as well. So do stay tuned for that. I would uh, welcome you, if you, any of you have any questions that you would like to post, and this is something I've never been able to do before um, because of the, the limits of our bandwidth at the monastery, but since we do have this opportunity, I would like to answer any questions that you might have out there in uh, bandwidth, bandwidth uh, world. <laughs> do we have any questions? Pia. Ajahn, we have a question from Michael Franklin. 
he asks, I was curious if you or other Ajahn still get anxiety dreams or if there is some point where those cease. Thank you. Okay. So can they hear that? Did, did they hear this, uh, what Pia just read there? Do they hear this or do just me? <laughs> okay. So uh, what's his name? Mike Franklin? Yes. Michael, Mike, Franklin. Michael Franklin asked if, if, if I or other, they, they hear Pia saying, okay, so <laughs> I don't have to repeat this. We're a little bit, this is, a, I'm a little new to this. So I will now answer the question. Anxiety dreams. Well, I certainly cannot speak for other adjuncts or abbots, can I? How do I know if they have anxiety dreams? But I will <laughs> speak for myself. Generally, I don't, I think it stopped, uh, anxiety dreams probably stopped 10 or 15 years ago. And the last, the, the type of anxiety dream what I, what, what was something left over from high school. And it was the suddenly realizing that I had not been to physics class for months. And it was now time to write the exam. And I, some, for some reason, I had not studied or been to the class and it was time to go. And I didn't even remember where the class was. <laughs> now that actually took place when I was in high school. I neglected my physics because I was in uh, journalism in high school. We had a journalism class and a, and a journalism office and like a high school newspaper. And I, I did in fact not show up to my physics classes quite regularly. And when I did show up, I had no idea what was going on. So there you go. That's a lesson for you. Don't neglect your duties. If you have duties, you better take care of them. Because if you, if you neglect them, you're liable to have anxiety dreams. <laughs> uh, but I, I must say, when you wake, when I wake from uh, such a, such a dream that I, I don't, um, it doesn't last very long. So, but anxiety itself is a very, very important thing. And I think uh, in my 20s, I did, I, I did feel anxious. And I think that was the beginning of the, of the spiritual, the search for, for the reason. And my first diagnosis of this anxiety was that I, I needed more exercise. <laughs> so I did some running and all this kind of stuff. And that and then I thought, oh, maybe it's my diet because I never paid attention to diet. So I, I tried various kind of health regimes, health food regimes. And, and then I tried, um, I did Tai Chi and I did yoga at a veteran. It was only when I uh, eventually, after some, a couple of years of meditation that I finally actually got some good results from the meditation. And that's when I realized how to deal with anxiety. The anxiety is a type of uh, thought process that you have. You're trying, in fact, to solve problems by thinking through them. And what I discovered in meditation is that you don't solve your problems by, well, most of your problems are not solved by thinking, uh, but by actually the induction of uh, serenity. And that the, 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 usually the problem 
which is the root of the anxiety, is dissolved rather than solved. So the problem which is you feel is uh, at the root of your anxiety is, is not something that you solve, but is something that you dissolve by uh, a type of serenity meditation. And this is not known, certainly not known in the, um, you've never been instructed this way in your entire school system. And if your parents didn't teach you this, then you have never been taught how to do this. And that's a, it's a way to use your mind. Or as in the modern times, we would say, use your brain, a certain part of your brain, which is almost unknown to the West. And so this is something incredibly valuable that I came across and I'm very, very thankful for it because I, I could never have resolved that without having come across meditation and especially samatha meditation, serenity meditation. So, yes, that's, uh, that was a nice question. And uh, are there any other questions, Pia? Yes, there are, Ajahn, a number mm -hmm. of questions. We have this next one from Swiskowski. I hope I said that correctly. Says, can Ajahn speak about working with pain during meditation? It seems that pain is an impediment to the mind settling on the breath, but that equanimity from a still mind is needed to work with pain. Yes, and there are a number of schools which attempt to approach this in different ways. There are schools which encourage you to sit through the pain, to ignore the pain or endure the pain, and to contemplate the pain, <laughs> etc., etc. But I really am not a I'm not necessarily of that school. I have been I practiced in those type of schools, but I, for one thing is that the Western body and perhaps the Western mind as well is not the body of Asia and especially the body of Asia, say, before the middle of the 20th century. Now, uh, the Western body, especially in the last couple of generations, has been raised kind of lolling on couches, sitting on soft surfaces and never having been required to bend their legs in a certain way or to hold their back up. And so I don't think the, the Asian teachers who taught kind of a strict type of vipassana where you're supposed to sit through the pain, I don't think they realized just how awkward and painful and unready the Western body was for that. And so the, I would say that we have to address the culture that we're in and the Western body and also the, the nature of the Western mind. So I, I'm, I would encourage people not to try to necessarily endure through extreme pain, but to change their posture. First of all, I, I do a, a absolute beginner's retreat at Birkin Monastery where I show people about six or eight different postures that you can sit in and how exactly to sit in these postures. But after you go to meditation courses and they just, they don't tell you exactly how to sit and they don't tell you the, the various postures, things like this. So <clears throat> I think this is very important to get the basic postures of sitting and, and a number of options, including ch sitting on, on a chair. 
so that you don't have extreme and excruciating pain. The next thing is that <clears throat> the mind can be partially settled down before you sit. And one of the ways to do this is through walking meditation. So to just uh, stroll very lightly and loosely back and forth uh, over uh, a stretch of uh, 15 or 20 meters and uh, just walking lightly, not, not in a too, too rigid or formal way, and allowing the mind to just be present in the body. To You can even do some breath meditation while walking. You can do loving kindness while walking. You can just be present while walking. And you can do this for half an hour or more before you sit. So when, <clears throat> when you come to sit, your mind is already half settled in. And then you have a certain limited amount of time that your body can actually hold the sitting posture. And your mind is halfway there by the time you sit. So that's a, a strategy and a technique. Now, this would be uh, difficult if you're in a rigidly scheduled retreat where they, they have a bell and you, you sit for 45 minutes or an hour and then you maybe stretch or walk for 15 minutes or something like this. It's hard to do this with that. But uh, if you're at home then you, and you want to um, try to do a, get into a more deep and serene uh, state, then uh, do some walking first before you sit down. Try to get your mind settled down. And then once you sit, uh, keep in mind that you can have... A cup, you can change postures, not every five minutes, not every time you just feel mildly restless or something, but when the pain in your body or your legs becomes just moderately uh, uncomfortable, then you can change quickly and gracefully to the next posture and then allow the mind to go back. Because sometimes it takes a long time for the mind to drop in. And uh, one of the things I tell people, I give retreats, you know, sort of 10-day retreats, where we have open, open sitting times of up to three hours. You're not forced to sit there, but you have it available because a lot of people have never sat for more than an hour. And the mind can often resist settling in uh, for an hour or even an hour and a half. And you think, I just cannot this, I'm, I'm finished with this meditation. I can't go any farther. I, I can't concentrate. I gave it a shot. But it's just at the hour and a half where the mind will finally surrender and sink into serenity. It will go into focus. So you sometimes have to explore this. That Try, try some time to have a, have a sitting of an hour and a half, at least an hour and a half long. But not rigidly in one posture, but just give the mind a, a good long chance to settle in. Because it may resist for an hour and a half. <clears throat> now, if you're leading a busy life and everything, you, may, you don't have this every single day to that much time. But at least once a week, perhaps, if you want to try to see if you can get into a, a, a deeper state of focus, serenity, and what we might call concentration, samatha, uh, 
you should set aside a period once a week of at least two hours, even three hours, where you decide you're going to stay in a in an area uh, in a small in a nice quiet room for up to three hours. You may even have to stand to give yourself relief from the posture, but uh, that you're going to give your mind full opportunity for uh, settling down. And that may take way more than an hour and a half, but you're not going to find that out if you don't give it that duration of time. Now, this is not what, we, what you might call Vipassana meditation. This is a form of samatha, serenity, uh, stillness meditation. <clears throat> uh, so we're interested in a different uh, result and it has a different it has a different kind of uh, fruition or it, it leads to a different type of uh, understanding of things. Okay, so I will leave that. Uh, are there any more questions, Pia? Yes, there are, Ajahn. Okay. This question from Mo Han. Mo is from Houston, Texas. The question is, how should we die? I'm afraid that we are going to suffer a lot of pain near death. Thank you. Yes. Well, one of the things about death itself is uh, do not prepare for annihilation. <laughs> that would be a waste of time since it's not, you, you're never actually going to experience non-existence. Uh, the only thing you're ever going to experience is existence. Uh, so what, when, when Buddhists talk about preparing for death, they're actually talking about preparing for life, <laughs> strangely enough. Uh, death for the Buddha is a, trans, a, ra a radical transition. It's radical change. There's no point from any point, any, any philosophy of preparing not to exist because you, you really don't have to prepare not to exist, really. The only thing you're ever going to have to prepare yourself for is existence. And so there's two uncomfortable states which are very related. One is pain and the other one is sickness. And that you can prepare yourself for as well. But what is the main preparation for that? It's, it's the abandoning of fear, uh, the fear of pain, the fear of sickness. And so the, the only way you can make pain and sickness worse is, to, is also to accompany that by fear or resentment or anger at it or grief or sadness at it. And so that's what you can do about, about pain and sickness is that you can realize, well, I can't just not have pain in this body, that the nature of the body is that it, 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 it can have pain and I can't avoid sickness, although you can try, <laughs> but you have an option about how you react to these things. And that you have to get very clear in your own mind that it is a bad idea to be afraid ahead of time of sickness uh, while you're sick or even after you're sick. And it's also a, 
uh, it's also a bad idea to be resentful or sad uh, while being sick or while having pain. Once you rehearse this very well in your mind and you yourself see this very, very clearly, then you will realize that your, your attitude to sickness and pain is separable from the sickness and pain. Notice that some people react to pain in an in a even humorous way. Notice that athletes, for instance, part of their, their athletic uh, experience may uh, involve pain. And they fully well know this, but they do it anyway. And they, they're not particularly saddened by the pain or afraid of the pain. You see in boxing matches and so forth, they get beat up pretty badly. And then they dance around the ring, you know, just full of bruises and battered and everything. And, but they won the fight, so they dance around the ring. So there's all kinds of ways of reacting to this, to pain and uh, sickness. And that's, you have to face the, the reality that you do have a choice about this. And so that is what the Buddha is saying. There's a story about the second, a man is, is, is struck by an arrow. And what does he do? He takes another arrow and sticks it in himself. Why does he stick a second arrow in if he's already got the first arrow? The first arrow is pain. The second arrow is sorrow and fear at the pain. So if you have the first arrow, the sickness and pain, don't put the second arrow in you. <laughs> the sadness, fear, anxiety, worry, etc. Do not do that. You already have one arrow in you. Don't put it the second one in. So that is the, that is the famous Buddhist story. And something for you to really, Mohan, to con uh, contemplate this deeply again and again and again and then carry it out. Okay, are there any other questions, Pia? <laughs> there are, Ajahn. <clears throat> this question is from Altor Vindix. I'm not sure if I said that correctly. I am new to Buddhism. I have a couple of questions. What is the Theravada Buddhist view of determinism, free will, and how it relates to dependent origination? Oh, let's start with the easy ones, eh? <laughs> Well, in, in brief, uh, Buddhism is not deterministic. However, it, let's say that it is uh, uh, conditional. Uh, your, your light, your experience is not rigidly determined, but it is heavily conditioned. Unfortunately, it is, it is conditioned, and you can feel this conditioning. You can uh, feel that you have, you decide that you're going to give up smoking or some bad habit, and then two days later, you, you find yourself smoking. You're going to give up this bad habit, and you find yourself failing to be able to do that. Now, that's a mystery, because who's in charge here? <laughs> Why? I decided I'm not going to do this, and then I'm doing it. What the heck is going on? So you, I think everybody practically understands that we are creatures to some degree of habit, and that habit has power. So we, are, we can see directly that we are conditioned. But fortunately, it works in the other way too. When we cultivate good habits, they take on a life of their own, and it, you can live effortlessly with good habits. 
So let's say you decide to give up drugs and alcohol or something like this. And after a period of time, you're no longer wrestling with the temptation. There's no, there's no temptation whatsoever. You, it doesn't occur to you. You feel happily uh, clear and lucid and sober, etc. So you can also cultivate these positive habits. When you go into philosophy, uh, they always ask this question, how is it possible to have, quote, free will? Uh, and if every, uh, is not everything preceded by a cause uh, in a rigid way? Well, the Buddha, at the time of the Buddha, there were philosophers who held this, this, uh, this opinion that we are rigidly determined. The Buddha rejected that. He said uh, that, that that's why in the Eightfold Path there is something called right effort. And here's what he said to, the, to, the, to his disciples. He said, monks, you can make effort. If you could not make effort, I would not say monks make effort. But because you can make effort, O oh monks, Therefore, I say, monks, make effort. <laughs> so that is a very strong uh, encouragement for you to recognize that effort in, to change in the direction which you would wish to go, uh, and you wish to go because you have gotten good advice from somebody who's wise, or you yourself have come across some aspiration, some wise aspiration, you can make effort to go in that direction. But it's not just any effort, it's skillful effort, not just brute effort. There's all kinds of uh, techniques and strategies for making right effort. Uh, and to uh, set aside this option, you know, this this philosophy that you are rigidly determined and there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, if there's a, there's a philosopher named Emerson who, who said in reply to, uh, to uh, determinism, he said, if I am predetermined, I am predetermined to believe in free will. <laughs> so take, take the flying leap. Uh, don't, don't be uh, persuaded by that. However, much it appeals to your reason, but preserve the idea that it's, you're not actually, you don't have mere free will, but you have some will. <laughs> uh, yes. And how does this apply to dependent origination? It is the essence of dependent origination. There's almost nothing else to dependent origination, but that, that you are capable of putting in causes that will have certain results. And if you put in the causes, the results must occur. And if you do not put in the causes, the results can't occur. So the Buddha is very much in favor of conditioning, but not in favor of rigid predetermination. So I hope at least that I answer your question a little bit. <laughs> Ajahn, this next question is from Rachel D. She says, hello, Ajahn. Can you speak to the three worlds, 
are we to understand that the truest place is seeing that samsara and nirvana arise ultimately as one blissful experiencing? Uh, Rachel, Rachel who? D? Rachel D. Rachel D. I see you are coming from a Mahayana or Advaita Vedanta kind of perspective where there is non-duality between samsara and nibbana. Is that correct? Can, I wonder if she can reply that she, she is influenced by the ideas of uh, Mahayana Buddhism or Advaita Vedanta, the non-duality of samsara and nibbana. Is that correct, Rachel? Okay, well, I will... She said yes. She said yes. Okay, so aren't I a good guesser? <laughs> that is not, in fact, the Theravada position. That is not the position of the historical Buddha. And it, it can be a very confusing uh, perspective if you take that up. Uh, but And it might even be a little bit shocking to you to hear that it is not the position of the historical Buddha to that samsara and nibbana are non-duality, non-dual realities that are both blissful. <laughs> However, if you, it also may be of great relief to you to find out that they are not. And they are, they are, it is strongly not the case. Samsara is another word for the first noble truth. There is suffering. Uh, <clears throat> samsara is not a place, uh, nor is Nibbana a place. Samsara is uh, fundamentally defined by the Buddha as ignorance. It is, you, you, you remain in samsara, and the problem with samsara is not the place, but the mental state which you dwell in, the, in there. And so it is, it, the, noble, the first noble truth is there is suffering. So the Buddha doesn't actually make any strong comments on the nature of reality. He doesn't talk about that atoms exist or space exists or anything like that. What he says is there is suffering. That's the only definitive um, statement he makes about reality is that there is such a thing as suffering. And that is the most important thing. The rest uh, this scientific exploration of what, what is reality made out of and so forth, it's not really important to him. What's important to him is that there is suffering and that the, the suffering occurs because of the root. And the root is avija, is a lack of understanding and knowledge. And it is not identical with nibbana. Nibbana is knowledge, vija. Uh, these are two polar opposites. They do not participate in the same reality. And they are distinct from each other. When one attains vija, knowledge, uh, samsara is uh, extinguished for that person. Uh, these are not identical uh, realities. Uh, there are various reasons why, uh, a sort of philosophical reasons why why the case for their, their kind of non-dual identity is made, but it's not the case. It's really not how the Buddha put it. Now, 
what does it mean that that you have to wait till you die to attain nibbana? No, of course not. It means that the enlightened person attains nibbana in this existence, but this existence is not samsara. Samsara is is ignorance. Enlightenment is the cessation of the ignorance. So in this very life, one experiences nibbana in this very life. One experiences the cessation of suffering. One is re- out of samsara in this very life. Uh, so that is a very important distinction between the two schools. They do not agree on this. The Theravada uh, approach is sharply dualistic, in a sense, between nibbana and samsara. Uh, uh, the, many schools in the Mahayana, etc., are non-dualistic about this identity of samsara and nibbana. So you really, it's very important that you recognize that you are hearing, you are hearing uh, words that are attributed to the Buddha, but may not be the historical Buddha. Maybe a later version of, or attributed to the Buddha, but much late, much later in the Mahayana school. So it's important that you actually know this distinction and it may be very important to your clarity and your progress that you do clearly see these are two different t- types of teachings don't get them mixed up don't let them mix you up but distinguish between them two Ajahn, this next question is from ranga jayawardena i'm sorry jayawardena yes yeah um jayawardena probably very good. The question is, I have, a, I have a question on the fourth foundation of mindfulness. Does one practice being aware of the hindrances, enlightenment factors, etc., specifically when they arise in the mind? Or would this entail sitting and recalling those factors and contemplating them or something else? Thanks so much. Well, it's very important, and some of the people who are viewing this may find this a little obscure, but I I certainly know what you're talking about, and you know what you're talking about here. When he says the fourth foundation of mindfulness, we're talking about the Eightfold Path. Maybe you've all heard of the Eightfold Path. Very important, the, the core teaching of the Buddha. The seventh factor of the Eightfold Path is right mindfulness. And under right mindfulness are four uh, focuses of mindfulness. And the fourth one is called mindfulness of Dhamma. Um, but I call it mindfulness of Dhamma categories. And there are a few. They, they go from the, the five hindrances to the five khandas, the five aspects of what a human is to the six sense bases, to the seven factors of enlightenment, to the eightfold path. Uh, Ignore most of those. Just keep two of these in mind. Five hindrances, seven factors of enlightenment. This is really, really important. These are the, this can be your whole practice in life. Five hindrances, greed, anger, agitation, sloth, doubt. Five hindrances. These are the psychic irritants of the mind and the emotional structure. Seven factors of enlightenment. Mindfulness. Investigation. 
energy, joy, tranquility, deep samadhi, concentration, and equanimity, seven factors of enlightenment. These are the opposite and replacements of the five hindrances. Keep this two beautiful little baskets of things in mind because they will change your life. You, you almost need nothing else but this. You're, you are to uproot and be aware of and uproot and replace the five hindrances. And this is to happen in your daily life as you go along. You are to recognize whether these are present. You are to remove them if you recognize them. You are then to replace them with something else. What are you to replace them with? The seven factors of enlightenment. The seven factors bring up mindfulness, bring up investigation of Dhamma. That is, what is reality? What's the important aspects of reality? The, the various characteristics. I won't go on too long about this, but energy, joy, change your mood, produce joy, uh, serenity, uh, leading to concentration, if possible, and then equanimity, this sterling quality of this character, uh, sterling character of being uh, serene and balanced in the midst of success and failure, the problems of life, etc. So these are, these are how you address the five hindrances. You swing them over into these positive uh, enlightenment factors. And uh, that is, is happening live in real time as you live. And you can also then, of course, reflect on them as, as well. So both of your strategies are good, but you, you need to do this all the time in real time in your life and then also in your meditations, etc. So a very good question and a, something you can refresh if, if that went by rather quickly and you can't remember what I just said, please watch other things on my YouTube channel because I go into great detail on both of these the five hindrances, seven factors. I have given lots of talks on them and exhaustively about them. So good question. Please, next question. This next question is from Olga Beloff. Question about Samvega. If you could explain more <clears throat> and how to tell the difference between depression or disenchantment. Yes. Olga, what a very good question. And this is, this is something that, uh, you know, it's important <laughs> that you be... Disenchantment is, is a mark of the mature and wise person. You know, the fun and games of life, maybe when you're... you're there are people who are immature and they seem to be perpetually believe that all of life should be highly amusing and kind of like a, like a silly game, you know? And really, as you grow up and uh, have been there and done that, it's not fun anymore. <laughs> that, and uh, that should not be mistaken for depression. Depression is another thing, which is definitely a, a problem. But Samvega is, uh, is disenchantment and uh, you are not under the spell of things. You're not a child anymore. You begin to 
understand that life is going by and bad things happen, etc. And what's the point of this exercise anyway? So that's the, the beginning of becoming a philosopher, becoming a wise person. And so you can welcome that view. Now, it doesn't mean that you're sad necessarily. You might be, though. Uh, but that sadness is something that can be addressed. And it is balanced by another characteristic called pasadi, which is uh, serenity. Um, I, uh, you are, you are disappointed or disenchanted. Uh, at the same time, there's no reason to be uh, depressed about that. You can be serenely disenchanted, and this is the important thing: to be samvega is a kind of disenchantment, and pasadi is this serene. You are serenely uh, somewhat aloof from the silly games that so many people play all the time. Uh, so this, you, you have to recognize that this, these two things can uh, occur simultaneously and should occur simultaneously. So you are serenely um, unengaged in the, uh, the frivolous games that, that people desperately try to amuse themselves with. But it doesn't mean that you're sad. It just means that you are a little too mature, a little too wise to get carried away with this in these games. As Thoreau says, it is a, it is a mark of wisdom not to do uh, frivolous, frivolous things, <laughs> desperate things, <laughs> which he refers to as games. Um, so that is a very good question, and you really need to explore the balance between this serene, this serene disenchantment is not depression, it's serenity, but not, you're no longer a child anymore. Good question, Olga. <laughs> Ajahn, this next question is from Zola Nibziba. Aha. Ajahn Sona, hello. Hello. <laughs> what is the expected difference in results between experiencing the breath throughout the body and single pointed at the nose? Or is it advisable to just choose one technique? Uh, this is a very interesting point. And I think when you talk about the breath throughout the body, you are probably uh, referring to uh, Ajahn Tanisaro's approach to this, where he interprets this uh, experiencing the entire body uh, as that the breath pervades the entire body. And I tend not to uh, interpret it that way. I, I, I feel that the, the, this uh, sabakaya is the, is the Pali term, sabakaya, in the breath meditation instructions, is the entire duration of the breath. And the entire duration of the breath is experienced in the, in the nasal cavity, or it doesn't have to be at the tip of the nose, but it is, there's this more spacious area in the nasal cavity, which where you feel the 
the quality, the air stream through and stream back out of. Now, I made a series of 10 talks, seven talks, what is it? Six, six jhana talks. I'm being coached by my, my, the people who are filming me all this. So six jhana talks, all recorded, and all of the details of those talks, especially breath meditation, are illustrated in there in great detail, literally illustrated uh, what, the Buddha, what the Buddha's similes show. What does he mean by the breath? Uh, what are the similes for this experience of breathing in and breathing out? He shows this, and we go and capture video and images of the references he makes and to how it was, what it looked like in fifth century India, the imagery and the similes that he's referring to. So it's the entire duration of the breath, but the air element pervades the entire head. So your whole head feels full of air, very light, right? Not necessarily your whole body, but one thing the one thing that is said about the experiencing of the, the whole body has sukha in it, has it, the, the entire body is pervaded with uh, well-being and happiness, and there's an absence of pain. So I don't, I don't call that the whole, the breath is throughout your whole body. I say that the Buddha said that your whole body has, is, uh, is pervaded by a pleasant feeling. Uh, the, the sense of the air, the breath, the air is, pervades your, your whole head, and that's, a, that's the sign of this, uh, of breath meditation. That's the, the characteristic which is showing that you, you're, you're now doing air element meditation. Please keep this in mind. When you're doing breath meditation, you are not doing nose tip meditation. You're doing air element meditation. And the purpose of this is to make you light and airy <laughs> and therefore joyful and at ease. And that's the whole point. So don't get too wrapped up in, in experiencing the entire body have being pervaded by the air. It's, it's not important. It's, uh, if it works for you, fine, you know. And it seems to work for people. I interpret it somewhat differently. It's not a rigid attention to the tip of your nose because that can, that can give you a headache. <laughs> but it is, uh, it is air element meditation. And the, the point of it is to make you light and breezy and airy and to let your difficulties problems etc go and that your 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 entire head and body is pervaded by a, a sense of coolness airiness lightness well-being happiness joy etc so that's the point of the exercise this next question is from marilyn yes Ajahn, would you say that practicing morality and generosity as a layperson would lead to a good rebirth? 
Yes. I would say that that is all uh, from the, you know, from the point of the view of the suttas, there are many descriptions of, of people appearing in heaven. And there's a kind of an interview process. Moggallana, one of the foremost in psychic powers, takes a little tour of heaven. And the beings of heaven, these, these angelic beings are exquisitely beautiful. And, they, and he asks them, well, how'd you, how'd you get here? And they, they basically just did some acts of generosity. And they rejoiced in the generosity. They just, they, it, it brought them great joy to think of giving, giving things to people and to being kind to people just made them transcendently beautiful. And when they died, that consciousness was the dominant consciousness that they died with, and they were entered into a beautiful state of heaven. And they, they weren't great meditators or anything like that, but they, they were good people. You know, they, they weren't harmful. They weren't somebody that you would feel very uncomfortable or threatened by. They were good people, and they, they enjoyed helping their maybe their relatives or friends or even occasionally strangers or something and they 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 fed people or they helped people and it gave them great joy and when they died it was foremost in their mind that simple pretty easy actually yeah this question the name it says golden chicken <laughs> did any sutta tapitaka discuss casina I understand it was seriously discussed in the Visuddhimagga. Yes, the, the Visuddhimagga, for those who are listening, is a later commentary, almost a thousand years after the Buddha. And Kasina meditation seems to have uh, been placed almost foremost. Uh, Kasinas are usually four basic colors, uh, blue, red, yellow, and white. Uh, like uh, discs that you make out of these colors. Uh, and then uh, element meditation. So earth element, water element, air element, and uh, fire element. Uh, these, are, these seem to be quite played up and uh, central in the later commentaries, but they're not so much in the time of the Buddha, in the suttas. So this requires some explanation and uh, some questioning of that. They, they do actually occur in the suttas, but are somewhat rare. The one that the, the meditations which occur most regularly in the suttas, in the Tapitaka, the, the basic, the, the teachings of, from the time of the Buddha are breath meditation, which by the way, is a form of air meditation. One of the casinas is air. And the other ones are the sublime abiding. So loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Other meditations are on the nature of the body. So the 32 parts of the body, uh, the corpse contemplation, the four elements of the body of earth, uh, water, fire, and air uh, are the four elements of the body as well. So you see these things, but the 
what are called casinas, what little sort of uh, examples of them, which you focus your mind on, are not so much played up in the suttas, but much later in the commentaries. And um, again, I have given a lot of uh, talks about these types of meditation. So I think there are 140 videos and talks on my YouTube channel. And any of the details of this, I really have discussed in great detail. So if you want further information and further detail on this, please check out those various talks on my YouTube channel, which I've made just for this very purpose. Ajahn, we have a couple of questions on this theme. Um, one is from Matthew Dolan. Uh -huh. Could you please elaborate a bit more on the distinction between vipassana and samatha? Well, one thing is that they are friends and not enemies. And they, the, when the Buddha talks about them, it's usually almost as, as two hyphenated terms, samatha vipassana. Go, O monks, to the forest and do samatha vipassana. They are described as two, uh, two messengers which deliver a message about the nature of reality to a king at the center of a city. And what they tell the, the king at the center of the city is that the outside of the city there are three things about the nature of the kingdom, that it is impermanent, that it is unsatisfactory, that it is without substance. Serenity and clarity. So samatha is serenity, focus, lucidity. Vipassana is simply um, extremely clear seeing. That's all, just to see very clearly. Vipassana is not a technique. Vipassana means to see clearly. So a serene and focused mind is how we would say it in, in English. Serene clarity. Now, what, those should not be enemies. Those are, those are really two aspects of the same thing. Uh, so that... They, they work together, and they are kind of a simultaneous uh, application of things. That serenity is the eightfold path. The eighth factor of the eightfold path is primarily serenity meditation. And its natural result is to see clearly, and that is wisdom. Wisdom results from the application of serene clarity so that's how it should be seen we it has it has more or less been taken up as a kind of technique called vipassana you want to see that in the suttas a technique called vipassana it it, it is it is um it is just a kind of a wise clarity is what it is yeah both of them need to be uh done and they're not a specific technique they're a, a, a way of addressing the world is what it is and each person with their different personalities will take up these practices in different and unique ways so the buddha is not doesn't give you a silver bullet technique which works for all people all the time 
he, there's a range of practices and possibilities depending on what you need as an individual. Some people need more emotional development, more heart development. Some need more intellectual development. Some need to increase their capacity to sustain attention. Some need to reflect on ideas more. So this is, there's a wide variety of, of possible exercises and, and uh, applicants. And that's why it's good to have teachers uh, that know you well over a long period of time. That's very helpful for you. Ajahn, this next question is from Sarah Taylor. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be a member of the Sangha during these times of social distancing? Does Birkin have a way for us to feel like a part of the Sangha while we are staying apart? I have a great idea. Why don't we do a live streaming YouTube thing from Whistler? And that will make you feel a part of the Sangha while we are socially distanced. How about that, my dear? Yes, how about that? <laughs> and so we will try to continue this with some tea times and our uh, winter loving kindness retreat. So you can join the retreat at a distance and feel part of the community at the same time. And this is very important. So, but also go to my YouTube channel and there's a whole previously recorded um, mindfulness retreat, which we did as a virtual retreat for those who could not make to the monastery. So we're going to be doing virtual teachings, virtual retreats because of the social distancing, etc. So now we have a virtual monastery. Yes. This next question is from Srinath Gunaratana. Oh, -ho. I completely trust my experience, the four noble truths and the eightfold path, but have little understanding of rebirth. I wish I could talk about rebirth. I wish you could talk about oh. rebirth. <laughs> well, rebirth is, uh, is, is something like we, in modern times, uh, we attempt to explain what a human is. Why are, why are humans, why do they have such in, interesting configurations of personality? We say that, oh, it, it's because genetics there's all kinds of information in your genes, which makes you sometimes makes you a math genius or a, an athlete or something like this. And then there's the influences of society and this, uh, the, your teachers and the, your environmental experiences. So nature and nurture, the West, the modern scientific West attempts to explain an individual as a combination of nature, that is, your deep history of genetics going back to to when you were a blue green algae <laughs> floating in the ocean or when you were an animal or something like this so evolution evolutionary theory also proposes that you you have more or less that your gen, your genes have gone through a an incredible series of lives including going back to the earliest forms of life. And then ordinary sociology and psychology explains that you have preferences and so forth, which are a result of your environment. 
Buddhism is simply proposing that the, the, doesn't deny those. Those are two factors that are, yes, very sensible explanations, but there's a third factor. It's that you're, you, you have, perhaps have been consciously another a, a, a being in a previous life. And so you're bringing genetics and you're bringing influences from, from the environment and from your parents and from, from your upbringing, but you're also bringing in a kind of a, a sort of recollection from, from, a previous, from previous existences. So it's, it's kind of like evolutionary theory, but literally not strictly by the propagation of, of sperm and egg but by another factor a con and a kind of consciousness which is lingering and a memory types and uh so this is uh this is this is was taken for granted um it in asia certain certain areas of asia and uh so it's not all that mysterious now the fact that you perhaps don't remember this is not mysterious either M most people can't remember 90% of this life. And psychiatry and psychology is often preoccupied with the fact that people do not remember events of their life which have great influence on them. They are playing out stories that they literally have no literal memory. And so early Freudian types of uh, explorers, explorations were attempting under hypnosis to bring up forgotten events suppressed memories which are affecting your life now but from a buddhist point of view the suppressed memories the forgotten memories can go back not just to childhood but but even even into previous lives so it's it's a it's not something that you have to do it's not something that you have to remember it's not even something that you have to believe in but it it should be a possible element of helpful explanation aside from uh, genetics and social uh, influences. There should be some possibility given to the perception that, that there may, you may have, have lived before and that you may again live in the future. Now, this is actually very, very important and people don't realize how different it makes you feel if you have decided to commit yourself to the notion that you may survive this, you may survive death, <laughs> that you have something riding on the line after this life. That changes a lot of things about how you do everything. So that's why it's important that you at least have this as, as an option. You don't have to prove it scientifically. It just has to be an option and perhaps a conviction in your life. And it will change how you feel and how you do things. Ajahn, this next question is from Mary Jane Moore. Oh. I have been trying to use right speech for years. I struggle with it and regret things that I have said. Any tips? Well, Mary Jane, well, nice to hear from you. Um, the the thing is about right speech is it's one of the hardest things to pull off because it happens all day long and it happens very, very fast. 
And so it's one of the hardest precepts to, uh, to actually accomplish. You have to be a virtuoso, either that or take a vow of silence. <laughs> so expect it to be hard. Uh, the, the trick is, I think, in the morning to prepare your heart. Don't prepare the words. Don't prepare your tongue. Prepare your heart because speech comes from your heart. It doesn't come from your head. It comes from the your emotional center. And if you get the if you get yourself in a state of goodwill and loving kindness and friendliness and non-fear, so you're not defending yourself, you're not trying to, you know, you're not afraid that people will think this of you and that about you. You're in a relaxed, safe, positive state. He, then what comes out of your mouth will be will not be regretted. You will, won't say things you regret. When you feel well and safe and kindly, you will say things that you never regret. But if you're feeling uh, inferior and worried and angry, you will always say things that you regret later. So that's the key is that it's the heart. Get the heart in the right space, then what comes out of the mouth will be right speech. Yeah. This question is from Nicholas Mendez. Can you please talk about doubt and fear in one's ability to become a member of the Sangha coming from a Western household of sensual comfort? Yes, you should test yourself first uh, for short periods of time. Uh, can you go for a weekend <laughs> without, without uh, indulging in, in sensual things? Can you go for a week? Can you go spend a little time in a monastery? Slowly seeing if you can manage. And then you, if you want to go further, then you, you, you come to a monastery and you say, I'd like to become a, an Anagarika for a while. Just uh, try it out. And of course... You know, our monasteries, we encourage you to try it out. We, we don't want you to commit it if you can't manage it. We really want you to find out about it and find out about yourself. So that's what you're doing. You say, don't be afraid. You're there to find out about yourself. And that, that our society that we're from doesn't really know about this, uh, this renunciation life. It doesn't, doesn't have any models for it. So... You shouldn't be surprised that it's a strange thing for you and you're not sure that you can do it. That's perfectly normal. And be, be very comfortable with that, that uncertainty and that doubt about whether you can do this because this is a learning process. And um, if it turns out that it's all right for you, then you can keep going. And if it's not all right for you, that's fine too. You, you find your happiness in another way, it's a somewhat more limited way, but uh, you try to, the Buddha is interested in your happiness in whatever way you can find it, but if you can manage to persist and develop in this, uh, in a more renounced kind of life, well, that, that's wonderful. But uh, the fact that you have doubts is not a problem at all. You, you, you will find out about yourself, yeah. Now, my friends, I think this has uh, been a wonderful test. It's the first time I've done this kind of live stream question and answer kind of thing. And we've been at this for uh, an hour and 15 minutes. And so uh, I think 
we will uh, call it an evening here from Whistler. <laughs> and uh, thank you for joining us. And they were all wonderful questions. And uh, so we will stay tuned to this channel for in the future. We will still be uh, attempting to do various creative uh, projects and including this kind of question and answer as well. Yeah. So good night to all. <laughs>